The following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, everyone. So the irony in this moment is that when I was in high school, uh, my brother was in college. He went to um, Urbana-Champaign, University of Illinois, and uh, he took a class called um, Understanding the Bible Seminar. Uh, And that class uh, was created by uh, Pastor Steve. Um, He came back with that content from like a semester long and spent uh, an afternoon, I think it must have gone five or six hours, with a handful of high school students. And that's where my passion for studying the Bible began. So it's, uh, it's interesting. It's, it's such a blessing to be here um, at the church that Pastor Steve uh, shepherds and to be teaching the Bible, um, partly in result to this class that he made many, many years ago. Uh, some years ago, I was with a good friend um, some of you may know him. His name's Bernie Shim. And uh, at the time, he had two, two daughters. He had an older daughter, Ashley, and a younger one named Ella. Um, we were uh, sitting down, talking, trying to catch up while you know, the girls are, are doing their own thing. And uh, um, he, he says, I need to go put Ashley down. Will you watch Ella for me? And I'm thinking, sure, no problem. He goes upstairs and... I'm there with Ella, and she's, I'm really bad with ages, but she was about like, like this. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm there with Ella, we're hanging out, uh, talking, well, it's mostly me talking, she couldn't talk, and everything is fine. And all of a sudden, all of that changes, because she decides she's going to cry. So she begins crying, and I'm, I'm thinking, I got this. I've, I've seen this movie before, right? I go pay, I've watched plenty of parents. I pick her up. I start carrying her. Maybe she just wants to be carried a little bit. So I walk around, and then that's not working. So I start, like, bouncing and, you know, making, making sounds, and, and that's not working. And the, the, the crying gets louder. And I'm like, am I making it worse? I'm like, what? So, so at that point... Um, I'm thinking, maybe she's hungry. So there was a bottle still there from previously feeding her, and I'm like, okay. So I just changed position, right? I just shift from this, right? And I, I change position, and then I've got the bottle. And as I'm trying to feed her, she starts crying louder. Like, she doesn't want this either. So, okay, what's next? What can I do, right? And, oh. So, you know, I do that thing. I pick her up, and I try to just smell. And, you know, to, to my dismay... I smelled something. <laughs> and somehow I'd made, I'd made it my whole life to this point, never having changed a diaper. Now, parents, please don't judge me. I don't know how, but um, I'm like, okay, I can, I can figure this out. So I go to that diaper area. I see this changing mat. I see this, the diapers, this weird garbage can. And then I see this cream that I know they use. And I'm like, okay. It's like assembling a bookshelf. Just get the job done. No extra components, right? Like, I can, I can do this. I'm an engineer. So, so I'm, I'm with her. I get the job done. 
It's not over. She keeps crying. And uh, it went on for about 45 minutes to the point where her, like, her voice was really hoarse. Um, Bernie comes down. I don't know what took him 45 minutes, but he comes down <laughs> and he looks at me like, what did you do to my daughter? She was just fine. To this day, we still, when we get together, we talk about and wonder, what was Ella crying about? And there's something about when, when, when someone is, is uh, uh, brought to tears, you just wonder, what, what is it? What would cause somebody to cry? Right? If you're passing by, a, a, let's say, a bus stop, and you see someone crying, you're wondering what's wrong. Um, when you see someone in tears, there's just this curiosity where somehow we're nosy, but what we're really wondering is, what's wrong? What is it that moves somebody and their emotions so much so that they would cry about that thing? And so we're going to ask that same question here of the Almighty God. We're going to look at John chapter 11. If you have your, your Bibles um, or your phones, or I think it might be showed here on the screen as well. We're going to look at John chapter 11 and what we're going to do is start at the end. You know those movies where you begin at the, the, the end scene, right? It opens up and you're kind of just midstream in this scene that's happening that's very intense. The scene happened and then you start back at the beginning. So we're going to look at uh, John chapter 11, verse 33 through 36. When Jesus saw her weeping, and this is Mary, not Jesus' mother, Um, But Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? We may be familiar with this story. It's uh, the, uh, the raising of Lazarus. Now, how many, how many people here, just by um, poll, somewhere along the way, at some point, you heard uh, or were taught that Jesus cried because he was sad that Lazarus died? Just show of hands, how many people somewhere along the way you've heard Jesus died or Jesus cried because he was sad Lazarus died, right? And at first glance, that seems to make sense because Jesus had compassion. That much is obvious to us. Numerous times Jesus was filled with compassion, whether he saw a crowd of lost souls, a man born blind at birth, or a deadly case of leprosy. Jesus' tender heart often melted for people. But in all those stories, he didn't cry. This is a rare moment with Jesus because he sheds tears. The other time we see this is in the triumphal entry, the last week of his life. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what is it that would move the Almighty God to tears? What is unique in this circumstance? And so now we'll rewind to verse 1 in chapter 11. And I'm going to go pretty quickly reading through... um, Uh, reading through the story to understand why was Jesus crying and then we're going to go back and draw out some principles and what we can learn uh, about Christ. 
Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Clue number one. Clue number one. The end of this story, Jesus says, is not going to be death. There it is, right there. It's clear as day, right? He says, Lazarus may be sick, but take heart. It's not going to end that way. And let's read on. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Clue number two. If, if you read the NIV, the, the first word in verse six is yet. And that is the NIV's attempt to help us try and understand this passage. The ESV gets it right here and puts so. That word makes a huge difference. Because if you think about it, if the word is yet, the, the, the story would go like this. Now Jesus loved Martha and, his sis, uh, and her sister and Lazarus, yet he did something a little strange and he stayed two days longer. You see the difference there? What it's saying here is Jesus loved Mary, her sister, or Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So he stayed two days longer. Because he loved them, that's exactly the reason he decides, I'm not going right now. Clue number two. He stays two days longer because he loves them. Verse seven. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? You, you, you kind of have to appreciate the, um, the comedy in this exchange uh, because it starts here and it just gets bigger and bigger um, where Jesus and the disciples um, often kind of communicate like this, right? So here's the thing. When Jesus first approached the disciples, what was the one clear thing he called them to? Come and what? Follow me. So everywhere Jesus went, right, it's a very different style of discipleship than, than today where it's 8 o'clock, Tuesday night, my place, see you there, we're going to get into... It wasn't like that. Jesus said, hey, you, whatever you're doing, drop it. Come and follow me. We're going to live together. We're going to sleep. We're going to eat together. You're going to see me teach. You're going to see me do miracles. You're going to see me do everything. So in this, in this exchange right here, the disciples went everywhere with Jesus. And so they were there when Jesus was stoned. And so the, 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 the comedy in this situation is they're saying, Jesus, um, why, would you, why would you go back to Judea 
Remember, they, they tried to stone you. And so you're going to go back, meaning not me, not us. You're going to go back to this place. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees uh, the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. If I was, if I was one of the disciples, I'd kind of be looking at the other disciples. I'm like, hey, do you, you understand? Did, you get, did, you, did that answer the question? Did he hear what I said? Did he, did he get that? And what Jesus is saying and uses often in the book of John Uh, Jesus is the light of the world. And so as long as you're with Christ, you're okay. The disciples didn't get this. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to waken him. Clue number three. Jesus is going to waken him. It's not going to end this way. Jesus is going to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. You know, we know the disciples to be these like, amazing apostles who did miracle upon miracle. And when Jesus spoke, they said, surely as thou sayest, we will follow. And that was not the case here. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Clue four. I am glad that I was not there. It wasn't just a twist of fate. This is not misfortune in Jesus' mind that he's going to fix. He wasn't mistakenly absent. He wasn't late. He planned it all along. And get this, Jesus is actually excited and glad that he wasn't there at that moment. Why? Because he's about to show them a miracle. And he says, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Clue number five. Do you see a pattern here? Is it clear? Jesus says this plainly your brother will rise again. Verse 24 Martha said to him, 
I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And this is such a Christian answer, right? It doesn't get more Christian than that. She knew what to believe, but everything she believed was some, for some later time that would manifest itself in her life. There was no present reality of what she believed. She didn't see the present power available to, hear, uh, to her here and right now. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It's not what he asked. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep, uh, weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Clue six. This is not that clear to us in the English. But where it says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Uh, what does this mean, greatly troubled? Like, so did Jesus get here and be like, oh no, what did I do? What did I, how did I let this happen? What am I going to do to fix all this? Is that the greatly troubled that Jesus is experiencing? That doesn't seem consistent with this passage. So what is he troubled about? And where it's clear in the original language is the verse deeply moved. It's derived from the word that means to snort with anger. And if you look in your Bibles, if you have the ESV, there might be a footnote that actually has a little number and then at the bottom it says indignant. So, we're starting to put together some pieces. Here's what happened. Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick. And Jesus says, it's not going to end that way, guys. And because he loves this family, he says, nope, I'm not going to go. I'm going to wait two more days. And he gives this promise. And he says, Guys, Lazarus, Lazarus has died, but I'm going to awaken him. I'm going to rise. I'm going to, I'm going to raise him from the dead. So he, he's excited, and he says, I'm actually glad that I wasn't there. He makes his way over to Judea, sees Mary, and tells her very clearly, or I'm sorry, sees Martha and tells him very clearly, your brother will rise again. And so Jesus is going into this town and he's, giving this, he's given this promise 
way, to the disciples, to those around, to Martha, very clearly, I'm going to do this amazing miracle. Your brother will rise again. He gets to this place. Martha doesn't get it. Mary doesn't get it, and she's there mourning. He sees the people weeping. He sees Mary weeping, and he becomes angry. Let's read on. Verse 36. Oh, I'm sorry, 34. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Clue number seven. You know, sometimes, even in the English language, you use words and uh, they can mean different things. I could say, I yelled at someone and it means I scolded them. Or it can actually mean you elevated your voice and screamed at the top of your lungs. That same type of thing is happening here. So, um, when I was eight, I went to my first funeral. And uh, um, one of my best friends had gotten in a car accident. And um, one of the best things my mom ever let me do as a, as a kid, eight years old, and she let me attend his funeral. And the funeral was typical um, for the most part, except in the back of the room, there was his aunt from Korea who didn't quietly cry and 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 just um, uh, have some uh, sounds of, of, of mourning and, and sniffling she was the first person in my life I'd ever seen wail so in this western setting um, this isn't as common but she no holds barred just cried at the top of her lungs for the entire funeral service now that wailing if you could just imagine that sound that actually still can be pretty typical of the Middle East today but it was back then and so what you would do when you went to a funeral is people would just let out no holds barred they would just let out their cries and tears and wail and even if you weren't that close to the person, you would go and almost conjure that up because it was a sign of comfort right, to the family, like we care that this person passed away. So that's the scene here. The word used in verse 33, when Jesus saw her wailing, and the Jews who had come with her also wailing, he was deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see Jesus wept. It's the only time that word is ever used in the Bible. It's not the same word as the previous two weeping. What is that weeping? Jesus wept. It's a quiet weeping. So let's think about this. If Jesus was sad that Lazarus died and he wanted to show comfort and sadness, how would he have cried? He would have wailed like everybody else. But he gets to the scene. He sees everybody wailing. He becomes angry and has a quiet moment to himself where he cries. 
Let's read on. Verse 36, So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, same word, right? indignant, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You could almost sense the frustration in his voice. So he took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me that they may believe that you sent me. And so we get in verse 40, clue number eight, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So what made the almighty God cry? It wasn't because he was sad about an unfortunate circumstance. It wasn't because he wanted to give emotional support to his family, though those are things that Jesus does. But here, what makes him cry is that the people who knew him and were closest to him didn't believe in the healing power that he had to offer for them right then and there. He was right there in front of them. Everything they needed in their troubled circumstances. And they grieved. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. In our trials, God is there with us. He feels our hurt. But what breaks God's heart most is not the pain of our difficult circumstances. It's that we don't believe in his person, his personhood and his promises for our lives. I'm not talking about people who don't know him. I'm talking about those who follow him and believe. This is Mary, Martha, Lazarus, who had relationships with Jesus. That's why Jesus wept. So let's look at a few principles we can draw out from this passage. First, God in his sovereignty has a plan for you trust see God didn't put Lazarus Mary and Martha through this for nothing it wasn't senseless senseless suffering from a cruel God but God had a specific purpose and a reason in mind he says it from the beginning so that you may believe faith building is what he's interested in paraphrased Jesus is saying this I love you so much that I'm going to let you go through this so that when I rescue you, you and all the people around you will believe in me. You know, 
Lazarus, I feel the worst for in this passage. Because he didn't know that. And it would have been nice as he's slipping into the last few moments of you know, his life, if he had this assurance, he's slipping into his death, that Jesus is like, don't worry, it's going to be okay. It's really going to be pretty cool. He didn't get any of that, right? So he just slips into, into his death. And most of the time, that's the case. We don't know or understand what God's purpose is. And that's why we have to trust. That's exactly where faith comes in because we don't know. In a trust in promises like Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. To believe that God works together for good, even if it doesn't feel good at that moment. Another principle, God in his faithfulness makes promises to you. Believe. Throughout this passage, Christ makes promises again and again and again. We came up with eight clues. So what happened then? I think one of two things I see happening in the passage. First, people took it lightly. You know, Jesus making all these comments, statements, they didn't fully understand it, but they just kind of like took it lightly, brush it off. They didn't take it seriously and do what Mary, Jesus' mother, did when the angel appeared to her, where she cherished these things in her heart. I don't fully get it, but I'm going to cherish this in my heart. So people took it lightly. The other thing we see people do is they take it figuratively. They take it figuratively. And so when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, she says, yes, Lord, I know, in the last day. I am so guilty, often, of a vague Christianity that is only relevant for a future day when I'll receive it all in heaven. You know what I'm talking about? That's true. We will receive it all in heaven. But Jesus' point to Martha was not that Lazarus would be resurrected in the last day, but that he was going to do it now. And I often turn the promises of God into these figurative irrelevancies. And we need to realize the power Jesus offers for us today, in this hour as we live. Yes, he will do that all in heaven and that would still be a good deal for us, wouldn't it? But Jesus in his generosity goes beyond that and he promises us today. For those in financial struggles, Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. perhaps for those struggling with unconquered sin in your life. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. For those making sacrifices in ministry, 
Mark 10.30. You will not fail to receive a hundredfold now in this time. Now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. To the brokenhearted, Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. This book is filled with the promises of God. Third principle, God in his love and wisdom delays, endures. God in his love and wisdom delays, endure. So, Jesus loved his family so much that he decides, I'm going to give it two days, knowing probably he's going to pass during this time. And the people came to a verdict too soon. Look, Lazarus is dead. Now it's, now it's just, it's all over. This following Jesus stuff, it just doesn't work. And they spoke too soon because Jesus still had a plan. And in his love and his wisdom, he said, okay, just wait. Wait, and I will come, and I will come through and do what I said, so endure. Fourth principle, God in his might can work a miracle, hope. God in his might can work a miracle, hope. You know, my first, uh, the first time I'd really been slapped upside the head with the issue of faith was uh, on my very first trip to China. My brother was a a missionary in Northeast China for uh, several years. And my first trip over there, we did a Bible delivery project. We were in Beijing and uh, we rounded up, it was probably about two to 250 Bibles and we went to this uh, northeast province. It was a 14-hour train ride, and then another bus ride, and then it was a motorcycle ride out to this network of 30 uh, underground house churches. And there were five pastors who pastored these 30 churches. Um, mind you, this was some time back where the, the local governments were even more hostile to, to Christianity. So we had these 250 Bibles. We had one was this like red Bible that's just, every, you just see it everywhere, especially at underground churches. Just a plain biblical text. And then we also had these fish and these fan uh, or flame Bibles. And it was just exactly what it sounds like. It was a Bible with a, a fish on the front and, and another one with the flame. Uh, the Bible was particularly um, meaningful because it contained study notes and cross-references and was going to completely revolutionize these guys' ministry. We had these Bibles and um, we had no idea what we're doing. You know, we're a couple of young guys in our 20s and we're just thinking this is going to, like, we want to at least try to do this. So we rounded up these Bibles. Uh, There was a local pastor in Beijing that helped us. And we're each carrying a a hiking bag. And then uh, there's one suitcase between the two of us that we're sharing back and forth. Um, we had to walk through x-ray machines. So I asked my brother, so uh, how does this work? Because when you open the suitcase, it's just 100 Bibles. And so you know, I was just following his lead, and we 
sent uh, emails out to people with the exact time we were going to cross um, and go through the x-ray scanner. And so we had a prayer shield covering over us, and we're just waiting for that time and making sure people were praying. And, uh, you know, our prayer was uh, the prayer of um, uh, Brother Andrew. Um, Lord, you made blind eyes see. Now make seeing eyes blind. Like, that's a pretty cool prayer. So, you know, we we waited for that time, and then we went through the x-ray, and I mean, I don't know what those guys are looking at because <laughs> just like, they're looking at the screen and we're just, we, we walked in. I'm like, great, you know, so we, we made it past the x-ray scanners and now we got to get on this train. And uh, it was really heavy, like all these books. We were carrying as many as we can because we're thinking, if we're taking these, this journey, we want to make it worth it. So we're on this platform and um, the, the trains and the platforms and I don't know, the engineering, it just... There are all these little things that, you know, don't lead to a very friendly, like, customer experience. So, like, I have, I have probably 100, 100 pounds on my back and, I don't know, maybe another 50 to 75 pounds in the suitcase. And I've got to take a step across this platform onto this train, and there's a guard standing right here, you know, checking your tickets as you're walking across. So, so we've got to pretend like it's not that heavy, right? And we're not carrying, so we, we have the backpack on, and we're sweating. We try to wipe it off. We get there, we smile, we look at the guard, and we're just, <laughs> and we step, step across, and we get in. Um, we get into the train, 14-hour um, train ride. We make it out there, northeast China. Pastors get the Bibles. They're in tears. They've never seen so many Bibles in their lives, let alone the, fan and, uh, the flame and the fish Bible, which they'd only heard about. They'd never actually seen and uh, successful project all around. Praise God. My brother and I are exhausted. We fall asleep. After about an hour, I woke up. The adrenaline had worn off. And um, at this point, with the adrenaline gone, it just hit me what we had done. So I'm like, with, with some sober thinking, so I'm in a communist country, staying in an illegal underground church, uh, associating with a handful of targeted men by local officials. I've just committed a major crime in a particularly hostile local government. It, it didn't hit me before I did it, but right in that moment, it just hit me. And I was forced in that moment, involuntarily, I was forced in that moment to ask myself, how much do I really believe what I just do? How much do I really believe in this book to decide whether this is worth it or not? I was forced to stand on my faith or what little of it I had. And the unsettling thing for me was how strange and unfamiliar that felt. I'm standing on my faith in this moment and it's like, woof. It's almost like the first time I picked up a golf club. Like, I, I don't really know. This feels a little weird. I don't really know how to do this. Foreign, a little inexperienced, unseasoned at this thing. And then I realized something. Most of the time, back at home, in my following of God, I stood on other things. Things other than faith. 
habit. Passion. I'm really excited about this. Guilt. I feel bad. I want to be a better version of myself. Or cognitive realization. Yeah, this makes sense. It sounds like the logical thing to do. Other things got me by. But what I was an infant at was the daily confidence in the truth and the power of God, who he says he is and that his promises are true. That faith that Jesus is here right now in my circumstances, in my life, he is alive and well and offers me the healing power and I can take a hold of it and believe that. Let's read verse 41. So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you would always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. They didn't know it at the time. But we, as hearers of this story, have a different perspective. We have the benefit of hindsight. The stone would someday be rolled away from another tomb and Jesus would someday step out of that tomb alive and unbound. But in Jesus' case, no one would call out to him. He himself rose. And that's why he is the resurrection and the life. That is who he established himself as. We know it now in the past as we look back. He did what Lazarus could not do. And so Jesus is the true and better Lazarus. As much as this story revolves around Lazarus, it's not ultimately about Lazarus. He's making a statement about who he is. I am the resurrection and the life. He is risen and he is alive. We can believe him for that. And when you don't believe him for that, he's the resurrection and the life. He rose for that too. See, the interesting thing about this is the people didn't believe. But Jesus does the miracle anyways. He does it anyways. He is the resurrection. He's why we should believe. But he is the resurrection and covers us when we don't. See, our faith often falls short. You will commit the sin of unbelief. You will doubt. Your life and prayers are often characterized by the man who said to Jesus, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. We get that prayer, don't we? Have faith, but rest in knowing he bore the ultimate consequences of our faithlessness too. He rose so that we would believe And he rose to cover our lack of belief. Jesus is the true and better Lazarus. 
Some people have raised others from the dead, but who can raise themselves? So that you will believe in me. So that you will believe in me. The goal of Jesus was faith. The cause of his tears was the lack of it. And the solution for both was his resurrection. So as the author of Hebrews invites us in chapter 12, verse 2, let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together. I invite us into a moment of just personal reflection. God is speaking into our lives and calling out to us and inviting us into these precious promises that he gives us. Will you hear them and listen to them and embrace them and believe, trust, hope? Wait on him for those. What are the promises of God that you are holding on to in your life? He's reaching out to you, arms outstretched, eager to be at work if you'll let him. Do you hear him? Do you hear his voice? And I'll invite you to trust in him, believe in him, that he is who he says he is, that his promises are true. And maybe some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, I've never known Jesus that way. I've never trusted in him. And this isn't even been on my radar to live in a faith relationship with Christ that he can actually make a difference for my day, that he can actually make a difference in my life. And if you're sitting there thinking, you know what? My own value system, it's really a faith in myself and my own logic and my thoughts and what I think is best and I make my own way but gosh I'd really like to know Jesus that way you can you can you can begin that here in a relationship with him now and I invite you say that to him and I'm just going to give us a quiet moment in prayer and reflection and just talk to this Jesus to the resurrection and the life the one who is risen who is alive And that makes all the difference. Let's pray together.